0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be, across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. And now your host, Eyal Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. You know us for Nail the Mix, but today I'm here to tell you about Ultimate Drum Production, our course that's going to completely transform the way you think about and record drums. You're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com to learn more. So, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Podcast time, AL Levy, and as you can hear, I am in an echo chamber, but that's okay because I love all of you enough to record, even when I'm in an echo chamber. My guest today is, you know, a longtime friend of mine and of URM. He's been on the podcast. Before he's appeared at our summit, shit, we even did a course with him. A good one. Uh, His name is Matt Brown, and he's a drummer, uh, an instructor, a producer, an engineer, just lots of different stuff. Uh, A walking gear encyclopedia. Really, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, I bet he could even play an instrument other than drums. I just haven't personally experienced it. But if I found out tomorrow that he could play guitar really well or something. I can't. Or (laughs) You can't? No. (laughs) Okay. Well, I found out that you were like an orchestral arranger. I just wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Yeah, Um, I do kind of dabble in that a little bit, so. (laughs) Okay, see? Not surprised. Um, If you guys are wondering what that course was, that course was Ultimate Drum Production, which we're going to be re-releasing This year. And the reason that I've had Matt on, um, other than just being an amazingly cool person, is uh, the man is just amazing at getting drum sounds and explaining it and just on a level that I've never really experienced elsewhere. I've worked with lots of drum engineers, lots of drum techs, and yes, I've met lots of great engineers producers who know how to get a great drum sound on their own stuff and that's awesome but in terms of collaborating with someone who could help my stuff sound better never met anyone who was as capable that's very kind thank you it's it's the truth it's the truth as a drummer uh, I've played professionally uh in bands like 10 years and various other projects But I can tell you that whenever we would do a drum session together back in the day, and we were, I was going to take the drum samples, um, you know, whether we plan on using them or not, always take samples of the kit. I would always have Matt play them instead of the drummer in the band, unless the drummer in the band was like some freak like Mark Costillo or, or Kevin Talley or something, you know, someone who hits the drums with like a force of nature, unless it's one of those people, I would just have Matt do it because when he hits the drums, they sound right. And that's actually a lot, uh, a lot more rare than you would think. And so not, not only that, it wasn't just that the drums were tuned right and hit right. I've never gotten that much useful advice about, the actual engineering part before or since, actually. Uh, So I just figured when starting URM, we want to have Matt involved. So uh, hence, Matt has been involved. And uh, (laughs) welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And thank you for that uh, long but
1: amazing intro. (laughs) It was short, actually. (laughs) I feel like five credits is enough. Like, just give me five credits. It's okay. Yeah. Did I name any?
0: Well, uh, 10 years. Yeah. We got one. Let's knock out a couple more and we're done. Well, I wanted to talk about John Anderson. Oh, great. So there we go. There we go. So you recently, and by recently, I mean in the past two years, uh, you've been working with John Anderson from Yes!, on his new record.
1: I have, yeah. The um, It's actually, I started working officially in 2015 on the album. Um, the album that we're talking about is uh, John Anderson, 1,000 Hands. Uh, and it was released at the end of March this year, independently. Uh, so there's, it's not streaming yet. It's You can only buy it at shows or on John's website. Uh, which was kind of a strategic ploy to force record sales, you know, in a time that nobody sells records. But yeah, started on it in 2015. Uh, was originally just supposed to engineer, uh, clean up the original recordings, which the record originally started in in the early 90s uh, with John, co-writing with a couple friends in uh, Big Bear, and then traveling to conway studios and working with alan white and chris squire from yes um to record what was supposed to be you know an album uh that john was going to release solo uh that ended up getting shelved for some reason uh now it didn't get finished so uh the producer of the record reached out to john after hearing a couple you know two-track stereo rough mixes and um wanted to finish the record and you know produce it and add and you know turn it into something that would be viable in a modern in a modern world basically and um so he re- he reached out to John John gave him the go-ahead and I officially started in 2015 when I got the two inch tapes from John they were shipped in you know they had been sitting in John's garage for you know 20 something years so they Actually, didn't even play. We I took him over to my dad's studio. He's got a, a two-inch tape machine over there just to see if we could get any. If we could get him to play, um, and they did not play at all. He we put him on the reels and set him up and press play, and the tape moved about a half an inch and then stopped. So <laughs> that um, that and that's unfortunate. That's what happens with you know old tapes. Is um, they develop sticky shed syndrome, which is basically the tape turns into a, a sticky. It's very sticky, and it won't play. Turns and, into
0: fuel, basically. Yeah, basically, it resorts ki- back.
1: It resorts back to the the oil it was made from, type of yeah. a thing. Um, so, in order to to get the audio off of the tapes, we had to send them to be baked, which is where they actually put them in an oven for a specific at a specific temperature for a specific amount of time. And when they take them out of the oven, they get one play of that tape. Um, so they would that company that we uh, did that up in Nashville. Uh, they transferred all the tapes that we had to uh, digital, twenty uh, four bit, ninety six k files, and that's that's when that's when I started working on it. And uh, it was it was quite a project from the beginning. It's it it most I would say most of this record was a uh, restoration project to begin with uh, because of the condition of the tapes. Uh, There was some killer performances that were unfortunately mangled and uh, were uh, covered in static and noise and bleed from other channels and, uh, you know, just all kinds of problems uh, with some of these, and some of the performances were perfectly fine. Uh, some of the songs were spread over two different tapes. Uh, you know, They were using uh, 48 tracks, so two 24-track machines. Um, but some of the songs were so long that they were spread over multiple tapes. Uh, so one tape would end and the other tape would pick up at that transitional point and carry out the rest of the song. But you know, we were missing the second tape for the second half of one of the songs. So there was a lot of issues to begin with um, that... Roughly we're about the first, I'd say about the first six to eight months was cleaning up tracks, finding the right performances of several takes, um, to making a list of what was usable, what wasn't usable, uh, you know, song lists that, you know, there's a list of songs and we're missing a tape that doesn't have that song on it. So what are we going to do type of a thing? And then once we got that, once I got that to a point where it sounded pretty decent, we began adding people to it, uh, replacing performances, uh, you know, basically creating a new record from 20, almost 30-year-old
0: recordings. Just out of curiosity, is John Anderson an engineering-minded person to the point where he understood what a gargantuan effort it would be to take those tapes and create a record off of them? Or was he just, is he just like a great old school classic rock musician and he had these tapes and do it? Well, I mean, you
1: know, his experience, you know, hes he was in, you know, Yes has been around for 50 years, uh, you know, so his experience with technology Gave gives him a certain amount of knowledge, but overall, I would say he's not very technically inclined because he's one of those guys that because computers are involved now, he thinks you can just do it like just do this, and you know, and and that it was several several times that Bro
0: Tools it, yeah, yeah, se- it.
1: several times that John asked me to do something that you know, in his mind was, Well, all you have to do is press a button, and the actuality of the situation was it was going to take me about six hours to to do what he wanted to do, wanted me to do, <laughs> and that was like, you know, my no, my knowledge of Pro Tools being since I've started on 1991 on version one of Pro Tools, like taking all of that knowledge into account to still try to figure out what he wanted me to do. You know, so he's he's not very technically like modern technically savvy, but. I think you know he realized once the once we got the tapes and we told him they needed to be baked. He he understood that process. Um, I don't think he understood how much work was actually put into salvaging some of these these takes. Uh, You know, when you got a guy, uh, you know, Chris Squire passed away several years ago, and you have one of his last unheard recordings, and there's a section on the second tape of the song that is there's no bass track to be found but it's submixed into a keyboard track and some other two you know stereo track with the bass on top you know how do you, how do you salvage that performance because you don't want to replace him you know it's mm-hmm. it's a legendary thing so there's a lot of that stuff involved that I I don't think John ever realized that I did and I mean that's part of the reason that it took 3 you know 3 years to to finish this record is is because of those, those type scenarios in that first year. That's really what I was doing the first year, is kind of making all of the great performances make sense and sound good. Sound as good as they possibly could, you know?
0: One thing that I thought was interesting when you told me that you were starting to work with these classic rock guys, because it's not just John Anderson. You've worked with quite a few of these dudes from 60s and 70s. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I actually don't know that many people from that era of music, but the ones I have met um I've met quite a few in passing, and I know people that know them and I know that for the most part, they're kind of in a closed off little world. they're not hugely and this is I'm speaking of generalizations here, but um you know if this is ninety percent true then I rest my case. Uh, I feel like musicians from that era, the successful ones tend to be part of kind of like an enclosed little group. And they're not that big on new technology or new shit. They like, you know, it worked the way it worked and they had massive success and it was great. And so they're not too big on changing it up or working with, with stuff that's, 100% modern, let alone they don't really totally always understand or care to understand what's inherent with modern. the modern version of all the production and how people work on music now, and that's totally fine. But my question is, you're not even close to that generation (laughs) age-wise. Right, Um, right. (laughs) How did you get them to trust you?
1: You're absolutely right about them being set in. I mean, their workflow is their workflow. They're used to the last, probably, I would say most of the guys that had a career that started in the 60s or 70s or even before, you know, like their most modern experience of a full blown production unless they've been actively doing it over and over and over like the rolling stones you know unless they're still an active band but if they're like or brian may or something yeah but if there's if they're one of those artists that you know has been out not hasn't done anything in like the past 10 or 15 years you know the landscape of recording has changed so drastically in the last 15 years that it's you know like their experience was you know maybe in the early 2000s which was you know it was We had a different set of tools, but it's nowhere near what it is now. Um especially in on the you know on the hardware side of things, like the the affordability and and quality of of hardware has has just gone through the
0: roof. So And that was back when, you know, if people said I don't like the way the plugins sound or plugins sound, right. They had a legitimate stake to that argument. Right. Or when people were saying, you know, when when people would talk about digital recording or, you know, the new technology and slam it. Right. It was legitimate back then because it really didn't sound nearly as good, but things have come... I mean, you can still make arguments for taste, but I don't think... uh, So taste, you know, taste is whatever. Taste is taste. But I don't think you can actually make arguments for quality anymore. Um, It just... If guys like Andrew Sheps and the people I've worked with on Nail the Mix who are fucking incredible are saying it doesn't matter anymore, then it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, the top of the line users are the ones who determine if it matters. And if they say it doesn't matter anymore, it doesn't matter. But back then it did matter. And so if that's the last experience they had was when digital was kind of shitty, then they really don't know.
1: yeah, it's a, it's a very hard sell. I, I think part of winning them over was being quick, like I said on our previous podcast, like part of working with people that have done this for so long is you just got to be ready to go at all times. and it's got to be good. you know it, it's whatever they hear in their headphones has to be great from the beginning. So there's a lot of preparation to you know to, to get to that level. Um, to where you could, to where I could do the the things that they wanted quickly. Um, I did. I but I've seen it with every every older artist that I've worked with. Once I show them, you know, like, hey, that performance was great, and they're like, let me do it again. The timing was off, or the pitch was off, and I, you know do the quick edit and the quick tuning and and say no 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 it's good and by the time they're ready to play it again i can play it back corrected you know that's like the aha the light bulb you know so they get comfortable really quick the downside to that is now they think anything is possible <laughs> so so now i'm you know that then i'm forced with the questions like john would give me where he wanted this entire orchestra thing to be changed that he wanted me to go in and change the notes of the real violin and and real violas and real cellos and you know not only just change the notes but change the rhythms and you know he wanted it done like immediately and it was like well that's like 48 tracks did you have midi we did have midi and we would you know what I was what we would do with the orchestra stuff on this record is we would uh program it with midi get it as good as it could be till he approved it and then we would bring in real string players to play on top of it real horn players to play on top of it and then i would create a blend of several midi libraries with the real instruments to give it the size you know to give it the the multiple player sound but i mean i i was tracking you know with our violin session person a player i was tracking you know up to 6 takes per part on the violins that were real, that were layered on top of two MIDI libraries, you know? So it was creating the sense of realness so you can hear the bows and you can hear all these, you know, inconsistencies that real players have with the perfect MIDI. But, you know, with John working there, we've been working with MIDI and and he approved everything and we recorded the real strings and then he wanted to change it, you know? And and honestly, with this project, I was, I was changing... And making revisions and edits to the form and changing parts and remixing up until we had the record mastered twice. So the second master happened in February and the album was released in May. I mean, sorry, the end of March. So I was making changes up until that final master in in February. Um, you know, it was it was a constant email back and forth of like, hey, I really wanna take this section out. Um, you know, and here's my edit, and I would have to take his edit, his crude edits that he did on Logic, and try to make them work. Some of them with key changes that came out of nowhere. You know, so <laughs> it was a lot of uh, how do I make this work? How do how do I make it sound cohesive and and still maintain the integrity of the rest of the album that we have?
0: Well, if you think about these classic rock bands like Yes or their contemporaries, these are groups of people that really pushed the envelope back in their day. Yeah, for sure. They were kind of like explorers, almost. Um, They were figuring out how to get more tracks, how to change more things, uh, how to just, you know. And I think that in popular culture, the band that people are most familiar with, who was that way, was Queen. Yes. But I don't think Queen was the only one. You know, it started with the Beatles, that whole... Let's push this as far as we can, and that the whole from there, that whole Prague scene of bands like Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, like Pink Floyd, all these all these bands that just pushed and pushed and pushed came about. And I think that uh, you plug one of those people into our modern tools, and I can just imagine, I can just imagine how many <laughs> revisions would come in. Oh, it was it was insane. I mean, I, yeah. I, I went to...
1: So, I believe I spoke to you because I asked you, like 2017. I was going to Nam, I believe. And I've I asked you if you were going and and you were not. <laughs> and I said, oh, the you know, I'm wrapping. That's rapping. right. <laughs> I, I mean, this is going into NAMM of 2017. And at that time, I was supposedly wrapping up final or, you know, getting the first draft of mixes for this record. It was supposed to be completed by in 2017. And I was going into NAMM like, hey, I got half the record mixed you know this 2017 I come home from Nam and you know think I'm buckling down to get you know to finish the the revisions on the mixes and finish the rest of the record and it turns into another year of tracking you know it, it, it just it was one of you know John is one of those creative people that he's he's always looking for something to improve what he's working on he's he's constantly making changes and you know, sometimes he'll go back to what he what it was before, but a lot of the times he's constantly tinkering on his own with whatever I sent him. You know, and he would send me back a, an edit, and some of them would be very small edits, like take out two beats. You know, <laughs> and then others would be like, "No, I want this whole minute and a half section taken out, and I want to make that into a new song." Um, you know, it was it was uh, quite an undertaking on on all on all levels of this. I mean, this record was basically everything that i've learned in my career up to this point to try to to finish it you know not just on the pro tool side of things but uh, the playing side of things i ended up playing on the record when i wasn't supposed to just because i was available to create a demo you know hey play this demo we're going to have billy cobb and play drums on this track so i you know went out and played drums on a drum set that was set up for a blue session that was not even supposed to be Sonically close to what B- Billy Cobham sounds like, or the song was asking for at all, but the drums were set up, so I played my best Billy Cobham impersonation, and uh, John and the producer ended up liking what I did so much that they just put Billy on another song and kept my demo track, you know, and that was kind of the the turning point for how much I contributed to the record because that was like the first sitting down playing something on the record and that turned into now I'm on a majority of the record as a player um, and and the original drummer Alan White is only on one track and Billy Cobham's on one track um, and then if there's if it's not real drums it's program drums that I also programmed a lot of and uh, you know so I ended up doing a lot more than just engineering on this record just because I was there and and able to do it, you know, like I had the ability to go out there and do a Billy Cobham impersonation that actually wasn't Billy Cobham, but it worked well enough to get the vibe across that they were looking for. so it was it was a huge
0: thing you're a pretty level headed person. Um so one thing I can say about you is uh, you're very good at remaining even. Try to, <laughs> um, but, yeah. I mean, we all try, but we're not all successful at it. But and I want to talk about this drumming thing. It kind of ties in. But one of the things that I think is the most fucking frustrating about working with clients is revisions. Um, and it shouldn't be. We're not supposed to admit that it's frustrating, right? But you just look at memes about recording or like rant videos or conversations between producers and. We all know that one of the most frustrating things can be revisions. Then again, you hear about projects like these where it goes on and on and on. Yeah. And people are cool with it or you hear about you know, you hear about those records with tons of revisions and and sometimes I wonder if people are just not talking about how mad they got or if they really just didn't get mad. But I mean, so what I'm wondering is at what point do you draw the line? Because, I mean, it's not like you want to... Like, you can't put someone like that in their place. There's no place to put them in. Yeah. Like, you can't. You have to do... You have to make them happy. Right. But at the same time, where's the line between making them happy and letting them just motorboat you into doing 80,000 revisions? And at what point should you just be like, I'm happy to be... I should just be happy to be working on this and at another point you should be like, I know my worth time-wise. <laughs> there's got... Like, where's the line? Yeah,
1: that's... Uh, well, I mean, I I was definitely was upset several... You know, there's been several occasions <laughs> where I was upset during this because, uh, you know, at, like myself, the producer and myself have a whole nother version of this record that we prefer <laughs> based off of, you know, before... Some changes were made that John wanted, in particular, like you know, we both have this version of the song of a couple songs where we just feel like those were better versions. um but we also lived with it so long in you know in it in the long form of what it was that, you know, just like with any band that has demoitis, you also as an engineer, i mean, I've listened to this record more than anybody probably will on the planet, you know, even after they buy it, I've, you know, because I I know every single piece of this record inside and out because I've had to, you know, just as anybody who works on a record for a while, you get to learn it intimately. Well, I've imagined taking a normal record, which, you know, I, I guess the length of normal budgets these days is like anywhere from four to eight weeks from start to finish, right? You take that and multiply it over three years and Imagine how many times you've heard this song, these these parts, these sounds. So we got used to long versions of a couple songs, and when John made the started making the cuts and the edits, we some of them we just didn't like at all, you know. So that that was frustrating from a musical standpoint, where we felt you know musically it was better the way it was. But on the flip side of that, you're you're absolutely correct. You cannot tell an artist like this. You know, no, they won't take it. They don't hear it. They don't understand that word.
0: In some ways, it's like I don't want to say you're dealing with royalty, but in some ways, it is kind of like you're dealing with royalty. Yeah, when you're dealing with a member of a band like Yes, I right. think, and it's almost like their way is the way.
1: Right, and and you know, and honestly, there was there was a couple conversations that that uh, John and I had where you know i was i was trying to explain my th- did he make you kiss the ring <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> but i was trying to explain my take on you know why i felt a certain part of the song should stay and i was explaining to him to it from a musical standpoint and then i was trying to also create an emo- you know explain an emotional standpoint that if we leave if we leave this section in, it builds the tension, and by the time we get here, it's just a, a bigger arrival point. And he he said, you know, uh, and this, you know, he had a great story that talked about how uh, closer to the song "Closer to the Edge," which is a long song to begin with. Um, and he said, you know, there's about 20 minutes of that song that's on the cutting room floor that never made the record. And as soon as he said that, I was like, okay you know that's turned into something that any yes fan is like this is one of the greatest songs that in yes's catalog period and it's long to begin with you know but imagine another 20 minutes added on to a piece of work like that that never made it and i'm sure there was an engineer sitting in the same place that i was going yeah but you got to keep it because of these reasons and he's like nope i don't like it i'm just going to it needs to get to the point quicker and so you know you i was at the at that time i i realized like it doesn't matter what i think like ultimately my input is is taken um, through this project and was considered but really it's his decision you know like he's the one that has the the vision for what this song or this record should be so i just got to i got to bring his vision to life now there was there was some stuff that he wanted done but I had to smooth it out, you know, I had to create, maybe it wasn't exactly what he wanted, I had to add a couple beats here and there to make it make sense musically so it didn't feel like somebody just moved the needle across the record and you're in another song, but, uh, you know, you gotta, I just had to let the artist be the artist, whatever he wanted, he wanted, you know, so you just gotta deliver, I mean, Thank God I was paid hourly on this project because if it was, you know, otherwise it would have been, it would have been a giant, (laughs) really, really frustrating
0: thing, you know. You know, actually, I don't want to get into like the details of the money or anything, obviously, but I think that that's a key point right there. I think that one of the ways that producers really dig themselves a hole uh, in these situations is in the pay structure, the pay structure that they set up doesn't allow for that many revisions. Right. And so then that's when they start to get into the scenario where they feel like they're being taken advantage of. But it the, sounds like with the pace structure you had, you know, it's like, well, maybe it's frustrating, but like you set it up to where, uh, you, the flexibility can be there and you'll st- Still, you're still taken care of. Right. As opposed to when a producer is like, you know, it's $1,500 a song
1: right. at the end. Yeah. And, and, I mean, well, in this in particular, the, I mean, this project, there's no way that this could have been done for a capped sum like it, the way it developed the just the whole idea of what the project was to begin with there's no way it could have been like well here's how much I'm doing the record for and here's my budget it, it because it exceeded that budget in year 1 and we went over you know whatever the, the the budget in mind was was exceeded by the end of the first year and and this went on for another 2 years um but the result the result is i mean there the the reviews that the record has gotten the the way the record sounds the the res- the response that you know the the yes fans have to this record is 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 overwhelmingly positive um which is great you know like that's all I could ask for. As long as it sounds good and people comment how good it sounds, then that I've done my job. You know, the as far as the you know, as an engineer, I didn't produce this, so the arrangement has nothing to do with me. So whether people like the arrangements of the songs, that's you know, kind of not really my input for the most part. Um, but as long as it sounds good th- and I captured the performances that resonate with people, then my job is done. You know, and so yeah, so. Going into this as an hourly rate was, you know, that's the decision that I had the agreement with the producer, you know, all right, we're doing this. Well, here's my hourly rate for this and we'll go by the hour. And, you know, whether or not my time was used efficiently and effectively the whole time, that's not on me. That's the producer's job. You know, he's, he's the one that's scheduling me to come in. So I would just show up and do the work. I mean, a lot, there was some frustrating, like I said, there, there was some frustrating times, uh, but in all all in all, it was it just it was what it was, you know you just gotta do it it's 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 you know working with like I said working with the that that caliber of artists you you just have to do what they do what they want, and whether you like it or not um it's not for, it's not you're not the core audience, you know,
0: but you know what's interesting is that sometimes it's a real problem though when someone super high level gets told yes by it. <laughs> no pun intended, gets told yes by everybody. Um, And then when there's an actual problem, first of all, they're shocked and they don't believe it because in their world, (laughs) nothing has ever been bad. Right. uh, At least not since they got famous. And, And they tend to, well, some of them will respect people who have the balls to tell them when something's wrong. So what I'm saying is that it's a very interesting fine line right um because obviously like you said you did make the case for things that you did not agree with at the same time you have to do what he says because it's his band his vision and he's a certain person who's achieved a certain extraordinary thing
1: and and you know people that have people that have achieved that level they are not afraid to tell you that they achieved that level either you know and i mean and that's
0: in case you forgot
1: in case you forgot you know they're the they're the person that's done everything what have you done you know that that's always it's always going to be there especially when you're my in my situation where i'm working with people that I'm about, you know, almost half their age, you know, of course, it doesn't matter what I've done. I've never done enough as, as they have, you know, so (laughs) they're always going to have the one up and, and that's fine. You know, if that's how they want to make their point, that's how they make their point. You know, there is something to be said about, uh, staying relevant and, and being in touch with the modern, uh, the modern soundscape, um, musical landscape, all of that stuff, you know, and that's something that, you know, as a 43 year old, I'm still struggling to stay on top of the, the, the newest and most current sounds and, and trends. And I force myself to listen to a lot of garbage music, but the takeaway is like, okay, this is how I stay on top of what's happening. You know, I might not like it, but at least I know how to get the sounds and I know when something sounds modern or not. Um, you know, so it's when you're, when you have somebody who's accomplished a lot telling you, you know, well, my decisions made led to this, you know, I mean, you can't argue with it. You just kind of, you got to say, okay, (laughs) you know, just got to say, okay. And, And, you know, like I said before, like, there's a couple, couple things that I had to, you know, just calmly say, this is going to take me some time. I'll get it done. Don't worry. I'll do exactly what you want me to do, but I can't just make it happen now. This is going to take, uh, you know, four to six hours or this is going to take a couple days for me to to really make this work, but I'll get it done. You know, it's uh, approaching, you know, approaching the artist with that uh, bedside manner, so so to speak, to make them comfortable, to let them know that you hear them. You're going to get what they need to get done. It just I, it's impossible for me to do it that quickly. So give me some time to figure this out, you know, type of a thing.
0: Man, when I was younger. And I had some pretty accomplished people setting me straight. It really would piss me off. <laughs> um, but like, it would, I, I'd i get so angry about it when I was talking to one of my dad's friends. Um, so my dad's friends were like some of the best musicians on the planet or corporate leaders because mm-hmm. the people that fund orchestras corporate leaders. Right. And like in, in Atlanta, so you've got Delta, you got Home Depot, you got Coke, etc. So let's just say that his friends were all sharks. Yeah. Um, whether they were musically sharks or business sharks. And so, you know, talking about what I wanted to do in the future, I would often get told the truth, I guess. And yeah. it would piss me off so much. I get so mad at them. And I I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, because now I do realize that a lot of the times they were right. They were absolutely right. Like when I was told about what would eventually stop me from touring, fi- financially speaking, and I was like, nah. Yeah. No, 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 no. They were right. They were totally yeah, right. Totally right. Yeah. Yeah. And for instance, uh, I had a lawyer when my band was first getting... Well, no, when my band was re-signing. We were signing our second deal, uh, Ian Friedman, RIP. But uh, he um, was like, don't take this deal. Uh, Not Roadrunner. It was after that. He was saying, don't take this deal. This and this and this is why it's a terrible deal. Your band will not survive. And I got that same feeling of like, fuck you for, you know, fuck you, I won't do what you told me, basically. Right. And he was right. However, I've had... Plenty of times also where people get that way and they're wrong. They're totally wrong. Mm-hmm. So I still don't understand what's right and what's wrong. So like when these older dudes, you know, are like, I did this and that. In some ways, they are right. They did do this and that. And fuck yeah, let's you know, they've got quite some wisdom at the same same time though just because they did x doesn't mean they understand why yeah exactly like, th- there's no cor- there's no actual correlation between um so what someone accomplished uh, like there's no actual link it doesn't just because you accomplished something at in one period of time doesn't mean that you understand everything about the current time and it just because you accomplished things at one point in time doesn't mean that you're suddenly a psychic you weren't a psychic then. You're not a psychic now. You still can't tell the future. Right. So there's a fine line there too.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there are some artists that become successful despite themselves. You know, like yes. their decisions are horrible decisions, but something clicks and it just starts going with whether whether they're, you know, behind it or not, it just takes off without them. And then they're going to take... And But in their mind they were the mastermind behind the whole thing the whole time so it's all their they take all the credit but in reality there's i've seen it happen where artists make the worst decisions ever and it could ultimately if it wasn't a more established artist it would just kill their career before they've even started but because they have reach and because they already have a fan base that kind of bad business decision and momentum. Yeah, they have momentum as well. That bad business decision isn't reflected in the outcome. Now, what would reflect the outcome is if instead of making that poor decision, they were to follow the advice of, of a younger person who knows the landscape of the current music world, you know, and how to market and how to uh, you know, get the idea and the name and the brand and all of those things cohesive into the marketplace together. That's where you that's the only place you would see a difference. Like otherwise there's no they don't know, you know, until they see major success based off of something that they weren't doing, there's no way for them to know because the train keeps going, you know. So as long as the train doesn't stop, there everything's great. And they think they know exactly everything that's going on. But in reality, it's like you're running on coal. You're running on a coal train when you could be running a supersonic, you know, train, you know, around the world on electric power with no exhaust. You know, like you could be on this upper level if you were to take the advice of somebody who knows the current climate. You know, that's neither here nor there. It's not applicable to John. But it's, I have seen it. And It's that's kind of where the the ego gets in the way of really of the business.
0: If you're like most producers, you're dialing in drum sounds the old fashioned way by trial and error, swapping out drums, heads, and mics until you finally find something that works, oftentimes for several exhausting and tedious days. Sounds familiar, right? And I guess I could be exaggerating by saying finding something that works. Sometimes you're just plinking around forever and never find anything that works. But you know what? It does not have to be painful. Ultimate Drum Production is our course that teaches you the scientific method for dialing in the perfect drum sound on the very first try. That's correct. The first try. It explains in extreme detail the sonic character of every single component of drum sound, with exhaustive profiles of every kind of drum head, shell material, bearing edge, and hoop, as well as ridiculously detailed tutorials on mic selection, placement, and room choice. And when you understand drum tone at such a fundamental, insanely deep level, it's like having a set of tone Legos that you can use to easily build the sound you hear in your head. You don't need to guess and check. You just assemble the building blocks however you want. To find out more and get access to this incredible course, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com and we'll see you in class. The problem, though, is that in order to be a great artist, you kind of need to have that kind of confidence, too. You need to have the confidence to chat I think that channeling that part of yourself that creates the great art, like, requires a singularity of focus that even if you're not like a confident person like the rest of the time that there is a certain amount of confidence that comes through it like it allows the act of creating at that level yeah occur and so you have to kind of be a little brainwashed i think to be a great artist you do need to be a little bit kind of high on your own stash, just a little. Yeah. Um, because if you start questioning yourself too much, uh, you really psych yourself out and get out of that headspace. And the one of the things that I think makes for great business is the ability to analyze everything, analyze why something worked, why it didn't work. And you once you really start to analyze things, you start to realize that there's... Usually not just one factor or one person, um, and and that can be tough. Yeah, when you need that kind of ego to to deliver art or sports performances or something on that level. Yeah, so it's it's hard.
1: You know, like uh, the podcast with Susan Susan Rogers, which what an amazing podcast that was. Oh yeah, that was great. But she, you know, she started talking about delusion and it's like there yeah you have to have the skills to back up the ego basically and i think that's where true success lies is a combination of ego drive and and skill and ability like if you have those three things that are on board and close and moving in the same direction then you will be successful you know and and i would say ability maybe can lag behind drive you know, a little bit. But if you go too far where the ability isn't there, then then that's where delusion lies, is that lack of ability combined with ego and drive. You know, like that's delusion to me. That's the ultimate definition of delusion. Uh, but you're right. In order to be successful, you do have to have those kind of egotistical outlooks on everything. Um, but you also got to have some ability to back it up. And without the ability, it's just not going to go anywhere. Uh, and no, it won't resonate with anybody, and that's really what makes an art successful, you know, is resonating with a, a person or a group or, and if you're lucky, multiple millions of people, you know.
0: Yeah, sometimes, though, you see these artists that are great, um, but they're intensely egotistical, and that egotism has actually stunted their career growth. Because, you know, no one wanted to work with them anymore. So they got big, like you said, and stayed big despite all these horrible right. decisions and yeah. could have been way bigger if uh, if they came down to Earth just a little bit, you know, just a little. Just spend a weekend a year down here on Earth. Yeah. Just to see how people operate. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> It's one That's weekend, true. maybe one weekend a month yeah. or
1: something. It could be on a beach. Just go anywhere. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Just come to Earth at some point. Feel that what the atmosphere is like. <laughs> Just get, get, a, get a little bit of that. Speaking of that Susan Rogers podcast, boy, that was intense. Um, I bet. it's Yeah. Uh, the feeling of being outmatched is really interesting. <laughs> and it was kind of... I felt like I was sprinting for 2 hours straight. It was great though. Loved it. What a great podcast. I mean I, I'm I'm
1: really yeah. into the 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 nerdy stuff. So that for me was just purely enjoyable. Like the whole thing. It's really great.
0: Yeah, uh, I it took 2 years to line up. Um it was worth it though. Totally. So we're relaunching UDP and you know it stands for ultimate drum production. Mhm. Uh for Anyone who is unfamiliar uh we launched it last year, and the initial reactions not i don't can't really say initial at this point, but the reactions were overwhelmingly positive, so much that it's kinda hard to think about topping it, and, and I mean in some ways it's not really about topping. It's just about relaunching because um if you missed it the first time, it's not like the info is no longer relevant. The right. info is just yeah. as relevant. However, um there, there are a few updates. And can you talk a little bit about how some of the feedback or what you learned since then uh, influenced what you wanted to add? Sure. I, I mean most of the
1: feedback was you know I mean I would say overwhelmingly the overwhelmingly the feedback was like I you know I think you nailed it I don't know if I could add anything to it but those uh, uh, there were there were several suggestions for um, uh, some more uh, placement and microphone shootouts so um we're gonna add some of those uh the other thing that I you know, I tried to accomplish in the original version. I think I did, but uh, people really want to see it in action in a real scenario. Is recording drums in a small bedroom? So that is going to be one of the additions that's coming. And with that addition, I'm not on, not only going to address you know, the drums aspect and the microphone aspect and the typical recording stuff, but I'm also going to address some acoustic issues uh, to help make a small room sound better, depending on what genre and style of of music you're going for. Uh, That that was overwhelmingly the number one suggestion. People, you know, even though I did a small room scenario in my studio in UDP, um, people wanted to see a a real-life, you know, a real life situation of what, how do I make this bedroom sound good for recording drums? So I'm going to take my uh, bedroom that is my home studio. I'm going to rip everything out of it. And we're going to start from scratch. And uh, that'll be one of the updates is recording drums in my, my uh, bedroom in my house, which is uh, my studio room right now. So that's, that, that to me is going to be pretty exciting and challenging. And I think within that I'm going to throw in a couple curve balls that um that I have learned in the process of making UDP as well as the experimentation over the past year that I've been doing cuz every time I'm recording drums I'm I'm experimenting even if it's like okay I need to set these these drums up and get this knocked out pretty quick I'm still constantly throwing a mic in a different position or trying a different mic in a position that I had never used it or maybe wasn't intended to use for, uh, you know, a combination of of using uh, samples with, while tracking that, you know, like there's certain things that I've been experimenting with over the past year. So I'm going to throw those in with the uh, bedroom drums. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be something that, a lot of people are going to be able to take away a realistic approach to getting great drum sounds. You know, dr- drums in a great studio are going to sound good most of the time and, you know, not everybody has that that ability to go to a great studio to capture drums um, or some people are want to build to where they can afford to do that, but you got to get the drums done first somehow, you know, and you, for those first, you know, for that first year of projects, you got to record drums and keep it low budget and make it, make it work out for your clients. So if I can turn a bedroom into something that makes people money than on a drum recording front, then, you know, that'll just add even more value to the information that's already there. That's just so much
0: more relevant too than, doing it in a big studio. And I guess I understand that uh, I do think you covered it in version one, but I guess people want to see the real thing, like really do it in a crappy situation rather than simulate a crappy situation. Right. Or or not necessarily crappy. Actually, I think that's a bad choice of word. Simulate a less than ideal situation because it doesn't have to be crappy. Yeah, exactly.
1: I I mean, and you know, I think everybody will be pleasantly surprised at how not crappy, (laughs) how not crappy it it is right from the beginning. Um, What we did in round one of UDP was a simulation of a small room, but also stylistically chose a genre to work in that doesn't necessarily need bid big and bombastic drum sounds, you know? So I was playing to the fact that the genre of music that I chose to record the small bedroom sound or the small room sound was appropriate for the genre. So what I'm going to do with this version that's going to change it up a little bit is, is record drums for something that demands a larger, more impactful drum sound and show Everybody, you know how to get the drums sounding good in the room itself. Um, how to get the room sounding good, but also some tricks to make the drums sound bigger without having to have a big space. You know, like using some techniques that I've discovered over over the like I said over the past year that kind of help beef up what I already was doing. Um, those of you that attended the summit. Uh, In 2018, saw a a very quick demonstration of what I had been messing with, with the idea of isolating the drums from the room, creating um, a bridge between some room samples and the acoustic kit to make it glue together so it doesn't sound like samples. So the summit attendees got a very quick glimpse at that. With this, I'm going to go into that with with more detail um, and really explain the process behind setting it all up and making sure that when the by the time the drummer gets there and puts his headphones on and hits the drums for the first time he's just like holy crap how did you do this I've seen this happen and I've seen it happen with experienced drummers like I, I did a session with uh, will hunt for a George Lynch project and you know I've known will will is the drummer for evanescence and he was in Tommy Lee's band for a while and you know the guy's a monster he's played with a lot of really heavy rock you know superstars um and so when will came in you know it was my i even though i'd known him for years it was my first time working with him at this capacity where i'm engineering and drum teching and he's you know playing drums so my goal with that project was to just floor him you know like the respect was already there we were friends we i'd seen him you know play he had seen me play yeah we knew each other around town before we met like all of that stuff was there the respect was there i wasn't trying to earn his respect i was just trying to make him as comfortable as he could be and i wanted to see him walk away from that session you know with his head held high and and wanting to come back and work with me again and and so i was using some of these techniques of of incorporating samples while tracking which you know i know some people do that all the time with the kick drums but i you know i wasn't doing that i'm just using room samples to supplement what I'm already what with my actual rooms, mics and and everything else, just to make it feel better for the drummer and finding a way to blend those together to where they really work, um, and, and you know, in 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 that experimentation to find that I I found that you don't need a, a large drum room really you don't need it as long as you have some some good samples that you like using that you really know how they work with. The drums that you have, they should work really well. Those are
0: big ifs, though.
1: Yes, that that is the key is is finding is finding the stuff that works together. You know, it's not just you know. Let me throw on this room sound from uh, Trigger. You know, well, if those drums don't sound anything like your drums, then it's definitely going to be separated. It's not gonna it's not going to sound the same. But if you're able to find samples that work with your drums, or in my case, if you're able to take samples of your drums in a larger environment, then you have this this uh, DNA that's shared you know, between the sample and the acoustic drums in whatever environment, so that it helps glue it all together a little bit more. It really is astonishing from a player's standpoint when you're in sitting there with the headphones on and you hit the kick drum and it just comes back at you, you know, not only does it sound good with the close mics, but you get this extra bit of room sound that it's just makes you feel like you're destroying the building when you hit the kick drum. I mean, it, it really psychologically does something to the player and makes them play better, you know? It makes them feel like they have more control over their dynamics. It makes them feel like the sound that they're getting is huge, you know? So it it, it really does change the way that the drummer the drummer plays and there's you know and so that's one aspect of what we're revising and um another aspect i'm toying around with with adding possibly later is a series of uh quick technical you know teach the drummer type scenarios how do i get the drums to sound good the techniques that a drummer will need to to sound better so those are going to be little little videos that i'm working on that'll be added later uh later on down the line uh, because that's that was yet another request is you know how what can i do to make the drummer sound better from a technical standpoint of his playing ability Um, that's a big one that's a huge one and you know when we when you first came to me about this course i i intentionally steered away from the technical side of playing drums because that that's a whole nother thing to all in itself you know that Besides, you know, if you look at recording drums, yes, the player is a huge deal, but I wanted to focus on the other side of it, because a lot of people, they, they a lot of stuff that i had seen, like educational content about recording drums, you had a great player in a great room right off the get-go, you know, and so... There wasn't much explanation to the the microphone side. It was more focused on the player in the room. And I wanted to take it and go beyond, take the player in the room and say, okay, these are a given right now. But here's why this sounds good from the the microphone on. Um, And now I'm looking at it and looking at the chords and saying, you know, that's a lot of information that I missed out on how to hit the drum and make it sound good as possible. You know, what tips can you give a drummer to make the drums sound better? Um, I touched a little bit on it in the course, but I, you know, like I said, I stayed away from going into the technical side, and And that technical side of a playing a playing ability is, I think, something that needs to be addressed, just like uh Andrew Wade has done in UGP with the the picks, with the pick selections and the and the the picking tech, the technique stuff that he goes to and, and into in the course, which changes the sound of the guitar. It's the same thing with the drums, and and I realize that needs to be addressed
0: and all the way from like posture, not not just picks, like yeah. posture, playing position, um, and obviously also how the shit's played. But all all those different things make a big difference, and I know that you're great at it with drums because, um, like I said earlier, I would choose to have you play the sample hits even when we had a good drummer around mm-hmm. um, most of the time just because how to actually hit the drum is uh, it's kind of a rare skill. Yeah,
1: it is. It takes, it takes a long time to develop a great sound as a drummer. It really does. And it's like a part mastery of physics you know part mastery of ergonomics you know like as well as having an ear to to know what sounds good or not like it's a lot of you it's a lot of those elements are involved into getting a good hit to sound good you know like uh with my high school students that i teach we dive into technique the first you know the first three months that we're working together and that technique dive is a lot of like explaining how the physics behind the motion of the stick into the head make the sound the way it is. And I demonstrate with the, with my students, you know, the difference in, in tightness and grip, the difference in angle of attack, the difference in speed of the stick to the head, just to show them the difference of, you know, here's all the different timbres and sounds you can get, you know, which one is most beneficial to you as a player or us as a group, you know? So I'm going to dive into some of that stuff later on, and those will be, those will probably be very short little clips um, that'll you know just be added on later, so that everybody can kind of, without being a jerk to the drummer, say, hey, you know, why don't you try this? Let's listen to the difference when when you use these sticks versus those sticks, or let's listen to a difference with with you loosening up your grip a little bit and see if you can you know if the sticks are slippery let me try some of this let me put this you know wax or this tape on it and see if that helps you keep the looser grip um if that sounds better to you or not and you know drummers are are pretty easy to take advice they're you know guitar players are a little bit more bullheaded about what they think is right and if somebody else tells them to do something they'll say no until it's proven Over and over again to them. (laughs) Whereas, whereas drummers, you know, growing up and being in a community of drummers here still, like actively, we're constantly sharing information. And myself, nor my friends, we're not, none of us are set in our ways to where we won't examine a technical change to make an improvement at any point. So, working with a drummer in a studio situation and asking, hey, you know, I noticed I noticed that you're leaving the stick on the snare drum head and pushing it into the head after you hit. And that's giving me in the microphone, that's giving me this type of pitch raise in the sound and it's deadening the sound of the snare. Can you try uh, you know, hit it the way you normally do. Let's I'm gonna record it and let it ring, you know, let it sustain out and then I'd like you to loosen up your grip and let the stick bounce off the head and hit and hit the drum that way and, and then let's come in here and let's listen to see which sounds better and as soon as a drummer hears which sounds better he's going to go well that's the one I need to do um, you know so hopefully those videos will help bridge that gap between the drums being in tune, the mics are placed in the right position, the room sounds good, the drums sound good in the room, now the player is the next step. So addressing the player is going to be one of those things I, I think is going to be super beneficial. Um, unfortunately, it's not right at the beginning of the updates, so it's going to be coming out a little bit later.
0: You know, that's something, too, that even if you're not a drummer, it can really help you because there... I don't know if you know this, but... Um, Oftentimes, I would end up being the person who hit the samples uh-huh. uh, hits um, instead of the drummers in the bands because I got taught how to hit more properly just because I took drum lessons and my dad's a drummer and my brother's a drummer. So I, uh, I, and I worked with great drummers, so um, I ended up making a point of learning how to hit so that when sample time came, if the drummer... Just didn't have it, even if they could play, but they just didn't sound great. I could do it, and I mean, it's better when you do it, of course but um but I was getting better sounding hits than most of the drummers I worked with, and those types of skills are good for a producer to just have anyways
1: oh yeah, totally i mean if it's like just as the the same skills as you know helping a singer you know, with the shape of their mouth or where they're placing the note in their head or, you know, like all of those those skills help for a better performance from the musician or the performer, so uh, developing an, a, at least a, 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 a minor amount of technical ability on the drums will help you with all of your clients. Uh, I mean, it's still, I, I still have guys that I work with that are at the top of their game as far as drummers go, but when you get in the studio, if they haven't spent a lot of time in the studio, they don't understand the translation. You know, how a technique that works for them in a live situation may not work in the studio because of these reasons. You know, the the drums are being cut short, the attack is too pointed and sounds papery. You know, like there's a lot of things that come from technique and not from the drum or the room. And so working with drummers in that in that capacity where they come in and I'll, you know, have them adjust the height of something because I notice that when they hit the drum they're hitting at a drastic angle. So if I adjust the height, that angle of the angle of the stick to the head is is decreased and therefore the drum gets a fuller, bigger sound. You know, like being able to pinpoint those things just by watching and understanding the technique of why that sounds the way it does. Uh, you know, just those little pieces of ad, of advice and and uh, can really help the way the drummer sounds and the s- sounds that you get overall. They're really useful stuff. I, I, I'm you know I'm glad I did. Glad I didn't put it in the first section because I think it would have been a little bit overwhelming and a little bit um you know too uh, drum instructional, you know, like from a drum teacher st- standpoint. But now that after after having the course out for a year and you know hearing the feedback from the students who have taken the information, put it into action, and noticed the deficiency of the player. That So now it's like, okay, you guys have noticed now that the player is a majority of the sound, so let me help and you know, bring this
0: to light a little bit. Speaking of people getting overwhelmed and it just being a ton of info, yeah. which it is. Yeah. It is a ton of info. What do you think are some of the most effective methods, or maybe you have a recommended prescription for how to best go about learning and retaining this info?
1: I mean, the simple, the simple, easy answer is is just do it. Um, you know, instead of watching the courses, I mean, watching the videos and observing. Which most of us do, I mean, the the default for learning is just observing, and unfortunately... That's not good enough. It's not good enough. And the reason, the reason you're given homework in school is because you have to actively participate in doing to learn. Um, so, taking that into consideration, watch the videos. Uh, at the end of the video, take some notes that you remember from that video. Like, not during. I would say watch it first as an observer. See what you retain. At the end of that video, write down the key points that you that you remembered and maybe finish a whole section where at the end of each video, you've written down the key points, then go back and actively watch and participate the second time by taking notes down compared to the first set of notes that you took, which were just the key points that you remembered, like take notes every time you think something's going to be super important. Um, So you're watching and writing notes and then do whatever is in that section you know at the at after the second watch participate in whatever that section is now in the anatomy section which is the first part that, to actively participate that would be if you have drums take the drums apart and look at how they're made what they're made of what type of bear, identify your bearing edge identify your hoops like just take account of what you have um and write that and, and write it all down make make a little note that it comes with a uh, there's a Google spreadsheet that uh, a drum identifier sheet, and you know, use that. Write down what drums you have, what bearing edges they had, what wood you think they're made of, or research and find out what wood they're made of. The number of lugs, the hoop type, the suspension or tom mount, what type of mount does it have? The you know, the diameter, the depth, all of those, all of that information without heads is super important to, way, to the way the drums sound. So, you know. Two active, you know, observational watch with notes, an active watch with notes, and then participating in each section. And, you know, I realize that when it gets into the recording side of things, and I start demonstrating these different styles, that not everybody has the ability to have more than one drum set. Not everybody has more than one set of microphone. Not everybody has a room big enough to move around and change the way the drums sound in their room. But each section can have a different technique, if not based off of head selection alone you know so watch observe actively watch take notes and then do that's the easiest way to learn and consistently repeating the doing process is how you get better is how you get faster it's how you get more intuitive more than anything and i think what separates i think what separates how i record drums and and set up drums and you know all of that process is my is the intu- is the intuition of knowing every piece of gear that i have extremely well like I know all of my drums intimately I know all of my microphones intimately I know all of my preamps intimately to the point I know my room intimately so where if somebody sends me a recording of what they want their drums to sound like I know where to put them in the room I know which drums to use which head configuration you know what mics I'm going to use which placement what tuning scheme all that stuff so that literally anybody can come in adjust the drums to however they want to play them i can put the mics in place we can get gain the gain structure set up and it's done and that's it you know and and a lot of i'm sure my the students have have seen that with their own with their own progress they've seen that happen but i mean for me it's still the the most fun is to have a drummer come in that i've never worked with before and the kit's almost set up they move things around and then as soon as they hear back through the speakers the first time which is literally probably 20 minutes after they walked in the door they're just blown away and we can immediately start recording like right away as opposed to three days later as opposed to days yeah as opposed to days la- later trying to chase the sound you know, and there's nothing wrong with taking the time. I, I'm not saying that that's the wrong that taking time
0: to do things is wrong. Well, you did take the time. You just yeah. took the time at a different
1: right. time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I I didn't take the time during the session. I took the time years in the making <laughs> to get there. You know, uh, and, and I mean, I can't say this enough. Knowing what you're working with is the biggest part of getting faster at getting drum sounds. You have to know your gear, period. Um, and I'm, you know, experimenting with different mics is, is always cool, but hopefully you've you've gotten to know what you what you're working with well enough to where when you do change something out, you immediately see or hear what that change is doing to everything. And to the point where you can make an, a quick judgment just upon a couple hits of whether or not that microphone change from an SM57 to an uh, Audix I5 is going to work for the project that you're on or for the sound that you're trying to get, you because know? every microphone has their own their own, its own EQ, and and knowing what those EQs are based off of what you have is is a very it's a very good starting point. And I mean I'm I'm all about efficiency when it comes to this stuff like I want I want it to be done so I can have fun on the mixing side of things you know I don't want to take my time getting the sounds to begin with I'd rather just have it sound great as soon as possible so I can keep the artist engaged keep the energy level up and then when they're done then I can have my fun you know on the on the mixing side
0: And I know that as an as a musician when I've gone to record with great producers and within the first few minutes, you start hearing sounds and they sound amazing. It's just a great feeling. It's like, all right, this is legit.
1: Yeah, it's a, a confirmation that you made the right decision working with this person. You know, it's like, yes, my money is on the line and I feel the same way. If I go to work with a business, you know, and I'm, I know of their work, but I've never worked with them. I'm always apprehensive of how the work gets done. You know, like, for example, getting my car worked on or my truck worked on, you know, like going into any mechanic, I'm extremely apprehensive about them working on my vehicle, regardless of whether their track record is good. Because I don't know if they're going to treat me the same way that they treated everybody else. I don't know if the results are going to be the same. Um, So, you know, because I'm paying for this. I want to be confident right from the beginning. and, And I feel like your clients should that should be they should be confident going in because you're, because of your uh, your track record and and your uh, portfolio you know that should give them enough confidence to book with you but once they book with you you have to give them more confidence that they've made the right decision or else they're going to leave there at the end of the first day you know tied into finishing the project with you and not super excited which means their performances are not going to be the best and which means that the overall product is going to suffer. And the last thing you want is for that that project, that band, that person, that artist, whoever you're working with, to leave the studio and have something negative to say about you. That travels. The word of mouth travels faster than anything else. It is really fast
0: because people just love to gossip. Yep, especially now. Uh, especially now. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, it's not that they love to gossip more now. It's that they're able to. At the speed of an internet connection yep, now. Yep. You don't need a carrier pigeon to gossip. Or a raven. <laughs> or a raven. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Well, that's ain't happening anymore. Uh, that's over. Um, <laughs> so spectacularly over. So speaking of the results and, you know, what happens after you record, have you seen any of the, I guess, results or evolution or, I guess, have you gotten that in terms of feedback from any of the people who took the course, just, you know, their progress? Do you have any info on how they've done? I personally have seen a lot of people who have said that they're getting the best drum tones of their life and all good stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean in the group, everybody, you know, the private Facebook group that we have for the course, um everybody shares their recordings, their their photos, their videos, all of that stuff and you know, the impact there to me was was like great. It's doing what it should be doing. Like people are are getting ahead. The real surprise to me and it and it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it it's still it's like so humbling and I mean, it's the whole reason I got into to teaching people to begin with um, is just that reward of of hearing how great things are going. I've had I had at the summit last year. Um, I had several people, several students that come up to me and just say that my course helped change their their career. Um, which that's a huge. That's sta- pretty great. That's a huge statement. I mean to go and uh, there was a couple people that said you know before. UDP I I never really offered recording drums I you know I just didn't know enough I wasn't uh, confident in my work so I'd always either program drums or we would go to another studio and somebody else would record them but since taking UDP it gave them the confidence to offer drum recording as as one of their services which has changed you know, their business, it's brought in more income, it's given them the ability, some, uh there was, I can't remember who I was talking to, but one of the guys at Summit said that because of the course, he was able to make recording his full-time job, because before that, he wasn't able to offer record, drum recording, but that opened up a whole thing that, you know, a whole new avenue for him, and and he was able to make recording his full-time job, which is like, that's, Incredible. Pretty amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, and and just off of top of mind because I saw his post uh, yesterday, uh, or, uh Corey Bautista is just killing it. Like, and he's one of the UDP students, and his his drum sounds are just. I mean, he's just killing it. You know, he's doing such a good job of. You know, the thing that's impressing me about him and and, and a couple of their students is they're taking the information I gave them and through experimentation they're finding stuff that works for them and then they're modifying it to fit their style. You know, what Isn't is that what they were supposed to do? It's exactly what they're supposed to do and and it's great. It's super successful for them and that's to me is more rewarding than anything else. I mean, it's I would I'll get together and nerd out on drums all day long, but to hear that that type of impact has been made that has changed people a lot, people's lives is just, you know, it's it's heartwarming and it's uh it's Really, it really touches me. It's it's the whole reason I wanted to do this to begin with. So
0: it's it's great. It's pretty crazy, man. Yeah. Uh, It's it's one of those things that I never actually uh, thought about before. But when it started happening, it's like, wow, this is pretty damn cool. Yeah. Um, And honestly, uh, one of the things that I always felt kind of bummed out about in doing music is, uh, you know, I've done music my whole life, and um, for better or for worse, the thing that always kind of bummed me out a lot about it was as great as it is, I kind of felt like I wasn't doing anything that really made an impact for anybody. Right. And, I mean, yeah, maybe if my band had gotten a lot bigger, maybe would have felt that way, but still, I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't feel like I was uh, doing anything positive for the world. And I mean I don't mean at all to say that music t- isn't a positive thing for the world. I just didn't feel that way.
1: I feel like the emotional uh, reward that you get from from music, you know, because it's most of the time it touches people in an emotional manner, the reward from that is not palpable for the person who made it. You can hear stories all day long and it's touching, but this is a different scenario. We're in a place of providing information that is completely palpable for the student, and you, and therefore palpable for you. You can, you can touch it. You can see it. You, you know they, they can tell you about it, and it's the same result as, as an emotional uh, response, but there's an actual physical thing that's happening where they're getting money for something that you helped them learn they could do you know like they took your information they ran, they ran with it and now they're getting paid to do things that they weren't able to do before based off of what the what you helped them to to learn and it's a completely different feeling than the than just the artistic emotional response that you would get you know it's 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 on a different level i won't say it's any better or worse it's just for me personally it it, it hits home and i can feel that more than somebody t- telling me that my drum part was emotional and helped them get through a rough t- part of their life or whatever you know that's i mean it's great i'm glad i could do that but to see somebody go from a bedroom or not having You know, staying in a one bedroom, that's where their studio was, and then being able to have a facility that's no longer where they live and they can afford to have that facility and they're booked up for six months based off of something that I gave them, you know, the information I gave them. That's
0: a completely different type of reward. It's rad. Yeah, it's totally rad. That's the best way to put it. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good place to stop it. If anybody wants to check out Ultimate Drum Production, go to ultimatedrumproduction.com and Either you will see, you know, depending on when you listen to this, you'll either see a graphic that says UDP is closed for now, and all you need to do is enter your email and you'll get notified when it gets reopened. Or if you listen to this at the right time, it'll just be open for business. But uh, yeah, ultimatedrumproduction.com. And uh, Matt Brown, thank you again for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Always Always good talking to you. Likewise. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast was brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be. Across all devices, visit sonarworks.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and subscribe today.